on one Oregon gray evening, I was chopping wood with a very dull axe. And I was struggling to get the split just right. And my arms were aching. And my shoulders were extremely tired. I, as any 13-year-old boy would, uh, began to whine. And I whined a lot. I, I still whine a lot. And I began to moan and get very frustrated. But to be honest, I wish now as a 31-year-old man looking back on a 13-year-old boy, I wish I can go back and tell little Casey to lower his voice. I wish I could tell Casey, it'll, it'll be okay, but if you keep this up, the pain from chopping wood will not compare to the pain that is about to come. So I was angry at this dull axe, at the situation, but I wasn't as angry as my stepfather was. He apparently could not take my consistent whining. Thus, he walked over and he ferociously ripped the axe from my arms and he said, smile. And he looked at me and he said, you smile. You better be smiling. And as he began to chop wood to show me how to get that right split, I would let my smile drop and he would yell, smile. And about the third time, as I'm clearly distraught and in tears and freaked out, my shaking, teary-eyed face let the smile go again. And I could just, it's so vivid, hear the axe being thrown into the wood. And I can hear the gravel underneath his feet as he just ran towards me. And he jumped on me, this big man. And he began strangling me. I remember very vividly his thumbs rolling over my Adam's apple. I remember the smell of car transmission on his fingers. And I remember that he was inches away from my face saying, smile. It probably is single-handedly one of the more harder moments of my life. And to be honest, I don't know how long it lasted. It could be 10 seconds. It could have been 90 seconds. I have no idea. I remember my younger sister screaming for him to get off of me, her picking me up and holding me and crying and freaking out. And that night was the very first time in my life that I can remember where I said the words, God, why? What? And this wouldn't be the first or the last time my stepfather had his hands around my throat. That became his target of choice for the duration my mother was married to him. But each and every time I would cry and cry under the blankets and I would say the words with fury, God, why? I would not be shocked if you two have muttered the words, God, why? It's this natural longing in all of us to intellectualize the badlands of our existence to try and make sense of a world strangled by evil and sin, right? I mean, we lose our breath, don't we, over the horrific tragedy of Sandy Hook. I was reading about Sandy Hook this week where Adam Lanz stole the lives of 20 children, ages ranging between 6 and 7 years old. I have a 7-year-old daughter. He 
killed 20 of them, let alone the faculty. And our knuckles turn white over Amber Alert, sex trafficking, uh, crooked cops, Ferguson, Columbine, Virginia Tech, Brussels, ISIS, 9-11, all the way to the millions of lives that were stolen in the Holocaust. And what's crazy is, what's crazy is, for the most part, all that suffering is out there. That's over there. Meaning, the, meaning for the majority of us, if not all of us, only observing that kind of suffering that I just rattled off from afar. But we too have our own suffering, which doesn't quite make the news. Every single person in here has suffered, is suffering, or will suffer. I cannot imagine the stories we'd hear if we passed around a microphone and I had you tell us, or, you know, tell us your tales of when you said, God, where are you? How long, O Lord? Why am I suffering? Why is there pain? Even for those who believe that the Bible is absolutely ridiculous or reject God, have you too asked God why? Is it safe to say that both skeptic and believer alike share this one opinion in common? That the question of suffering and affection, or, um, uh, excuse me, affliction provides the greatest challenge to belief in God. Uh, a company called Barna Group, it's sort of a data and research hub for culture and faith, revealed recently by an extremely high margin that the question of God and suffering, it is the most difficult to grasp. This being the number one issue that causes people to disbelieve, to say, no, I'm, I'm done following Jesus. I am done. Perhaps that is true for somebody here tonight. Was it this very sort of stream of thinking that led you to denounce the existence of God himself? The thing is, skeptic or not, it doesn't matter because we all speak the universal language of suffering. Suffering does not play favorites. It isn't partial. It transcends all class and race and ethnicity and culture and gender and age and privilege. There is no corner of life for anybody untouched by pain. And the sobering truth is, if we haven't, and and bear with me, the sobering truth is, if we haven't really suffered, just give it time. We will. You will. I'm reminded of author Ann Patchett's words on this very concept as she said, sort of a funny quote, she said, the fact is staving off our own death is one of our favorite national pastimes. Whether it's exercise or checking our cholesterol or having a mammogram, we are always hedging against mortality. But a sniper taking a single clean shot, not into a crowd, but through the sight, reminds us horribly of death itself. Despite our best intentions, it is still, for the most part, random, and it is absolutely coming. So because we know this, that it is absolutely coming, is exactly why we are taking our time, Collective Church, to understand it. And to not only understand it, but be ready for it. Be ready for it. Peter, our buddy from Acts, we've been hanging out with, it, with for a while, if you guys remember, tells any and all followers of Jesus Christ, he says these words, Beloved, do not be surprised 
Don't be shocked. Don't be freaked out. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. What's happening to me? Don't be freaked out, but rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Collective church, what would it look like for us to really know suffering? To really understand suffering? To not be surprised, but to be a church, to be a community that has answers and can comfort? How different would our circles of life be if we suffered well and then helped those around us suffer well. Friends, let this thought inspire and motivate you as it did this to me this week because here it is, because if we as Christians can't suffer rightly, how can anybody else? If we with all the answers to the universe cannot suffer rightly, how possibly could anybody else? So because of that, we're taking five weeks, the entire month of May, to seek and to know suffering in all things therein. So hear me out. I encourage you, if you want to be better acquainted with this topic, I make it a priority to be here each and every Sunday. I also pray that your discipleship groups are rich with comfort in conversation. Because as much as I wish, hear me out, as much as I wish that I could solve the problem of suffering and our deepest pains and dilemmas with a single sermon, you know, with like three P points and C.S. Lewis quotes, it ain't happening. That will, that is just not the case with this topic. That would be like trying to build a single home with one two-by-four or trying to make a three-layered cake with a single egg. It's not going to happen. The truth is suffering has no straightforward, single, simple answer. There is no 140-character response to easily one of life's most devastating questions and realities. So these talks for the month of May are not one-offs. They're chapters telling an entire story and an idea. So something that may not be answered tonight may be answered in week three. And I promise you, by the end of it, if I haven't answered, you can send all of your frustrated emails to Lorenzo, and he will answer every (laughs) single one of your concerns. So just for a quick overview, I just want you guys to kind of know what's coming. What we'll be looking at in May, as we pick up Acts again next week, we're only in Romans for today, we'll be uncovering the sovereignty of God, We'll be talking about next week the problem of evil. How can we love our enemies or those who hurt us? What is sincere forgiveness, our response to suffering, persecution, and the persecuted church? And we'll be having people share their stories about how they overcome. So I hope you guys are looking forward to this. Ultimately, our hearts are, as the elders of the church, this church would never be the same. And I pray that that is your prayer as well after trying to grow and understand this topic. And for tonight, bear with me as we have to work through some of the technicals and set up this topic, you know, as well as possible. So tonight, we're going to lay the concrete foundation, the tent stakes and purpose and understanding suffering. You see, the Bible is wise to suffering. The Bible has much to say on pain and affliction and trials. The Bible does not ignore this topic. The Bible does not gloss over it. The Bible is raw. The Bible is like a David Fincher film. I mean, it shows every single cut and scrape of what it means to follow Jesus. And think about this. That's the Bible where atheism has nothing to say, nor can they. 
Buddhism and karma believe suffering is appropriate and right. New Age would push for mind over matter. Mary Baker Eddy, Christian science, would have us to see as pain as an illusion. And others simply just medicate it or try to escape it. But the Bible shows us something radically different. See, Christianity is the only community, community in the world which rejoices in suffering. Rejoices in it. A German philosopher once wrote an article titled The Meaning of Suffering, where he discusses the uniqueness of Christians and hardship. He says this, Christian teaching on suffering seems a complete reversal of attitude. This should strike us as odd. Why is this exactly? Why the reversal with the Christian mindset in suffering? Because it's only with the God of the Bible, with Jesus Christ, that every time our heart screams the word, God, why? It's really an outcry for meaning. God, why? Is a roar for purpose. And Christianity, and only Christianity, gives us that. Which makes us stop and turn our why into how. How does one come to understand the meaning of suffering then? How does one understand the meaning of suffering? Well, first, it starts by this. It starts by hating it. We start by hating suffering as God hates suffering. In my times of hurt, where I find what I find supremely com- um, comforting is the fact that God, too, weeps over it. That whatever disturbs me disturbs God. That whatever grief I feel, God feels it more. See, suffering, sin, pain, and hurt were not part of his design nor plan. Know this, friends. The God of the Christian faith is neither the craftsman of sin nor our suffering. The Bible explains in its very first chapters that the God created the world. God created this world, and it was nothing but good. Suffering and everything we will see for the next few weeks is the aftermath of sin. Sin being where we place ourselves our God. We reject God. We push God away. And we see this so vividly in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible that you are holding. Author and theologian Michael Williams says it better than I ever could, but it's very revealing. He says, By beginning with the story of creation rather than the fall, That's where sin enters. Scripture proclaims categorically that sin is an intruder. That it's not the product of God's creativity. It does not belong. Sin is not the only intruder, but its evil children, suffering and death, have intruded as well. So friends, this shows us we can loathe cancer. We can hate cancer injustice and we can recoil at pain because we were not made for it and neither was this world every shade of it is a violation to god's creation intent but this leaves us at an interesting place at least it did for me or a better word for it a paradox because if we believe as god is all-powerful and he's creating 
you know, killer whales and rocks and all this. And man, he's creating all this stuff. And he's sovereign, and sovereignty we'll get into. But essentially, God reigns and rules over all. That brings us to the sort of weirdness of, okay, then why not prevention? Okay, then God, why create such a place where this is even possible? Okay, why don't you stop the triggers from being pulled? Why don't you stop the cars from collision? Why didn't you stop my stepfather as he put his hands around my neck? And to that I say with all of my heart, I don't know. I have no idea. All right, let's go home. (laughs) But if you would allow me, if you would allow me to pose some potentials, some potentials, to present what scholars and theologians have been debating about forever. And from there, we with our finite noodles can do the best we can to, you know, to comprehend this topic. So potential, number one. I mean, could it be why God doesn't stop or prevention? Could it be that God wants men and women to be with him freely and lovingly and not just because of programming? Let me go with this. Meaning, our God does not want a bunch of Stepford wives to inhabit his creation. God chooses to teach us willing love and obedience by making himself vulnerable and creating creatures who can reject or who can receive. The ability to sincerely love means the ability to sincerely love not. In the same way, my children, if they snuggled up against me or held my hand, not by willing love, it would be plastic. So God chooses majority of the time to not interfere because that would be robbing freedom and love from his very creation. Another potential. Could it be that, yes, an all-powerful God could put an end to evil tomorrow, tonight, right now, but if we're honest, would any of us be here besides me? That was a joke. Goodness, you guys. It's a heavy topic, I know. But we, we, we should find great consolation that the God of the Christian faith has promised to banish suffering and wrongdoing. God will bring an evil to its end. But for now, God in his patience is bringing all to himself. Could it be Simply just that sin is rotting every human heart of every man, woman, and child. And mankind purely just stinks. That this world is just corrupt and in in a desperate need of somebody to save it. See, every drip of pain and tribulation is a stinging reminder that man has fallen and needs rescuing. And lastly, could it be all of these? We live with the explanation as more of a paradox. We'll be cutting into, again, the problem of evil next week. But what we do, but what we do not know, I'd like to fall back on then what we do know. If that's what we cannot know, let's fall back on what we do know. And with that, I really hope throughout May that we see, we see very greatly that we need more than just an explanation to the why questions. Right? We need more than just an explanation. Didn't you, when you guys were 
what, if you were sick or in the hospital, think about it. If I came into the hospital and I started explaining the theological position of the trilemma and the free will debate, you would be pointless. You'd have me committed. You'd ask me to leave. So we need something far more tangible in suffering. And stay with me for a moment. If anybody talks about suffering, especially in the Bible, for the majority of us, our mind goes to one man. And that's our pal, Job. Has anybody read Job? It's rough. That's rough. This will be a man who has brought up quite a bit over this miniseries, but he is a must with such topic and ideas. See, Job is a man who deserves suffering the least and endured it the most. Job was a man who lost everything, children, family, health, wealth, friends. Job was a man who was not afraid to ask God why a lot. He asked it a lot. And after chapter after chapter of why God, why God, why God, Job finally gets his response. Job gets his interview with the Almighty. But God doesn't explain the whys of suffering. See, God's showing him. We need more than an explanation to suffering. God is showing to Job something more. See, God, he doesn't give an explanation. He explodes. Even at one point, God says this to Job's never-ending questions. And this, <laughs> these are gnarly. This is what he says. This is what God's saying to Job. Dress for action like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. And he goes on to answer the suffering man by asking Job the questions now. Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of water may cover you? I like the way author and minister Frederick Buchner puts this. He goes, God doesn't explain, he explodes. He asks Job who he thinks he is anyway. He says to try to explain the kind of things Job wanted to explain would be trying to explain Einstein to a little neck clam. God doesn't reveal his grand design. He reveals himself. There's the tangible we're working towards. And it's worth noting, it's worth noting that for the entire book of Job, Job asked the tough questions of God, why is this happening? God, why does this exist? But never, never, never did Job ask, God, do you exist? Because Job knew, even though he may not have fully understood the situation, he knew a God who did. This is worth a little pit stop. Because let's be honest, when comprehending suffering, if not the God of the Bible, patient and slow to anger and abounding in love, the very God who is spilling over with love and grace in times of suffering, if not him, then who do we run to? I'm reminded of Peter's words again, this time in the Gospels, where Jesus asked, are you going to leave me too? Are you going to run? And Peter says to him, where would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Throughout my time in ministry, I've seen two revealing paradigms. Those trying to comprehend suffering and abandon God, and those in suffering who run to God. It's so key that we get this, even though there may be paradoxes and unanswered questions and mystery, and as mysterious as suffering can be, the point is this. Hear me, hear me, hear me. It's not meaningless. It's not 
meaningless. Do you believe this? Do you know this? This is why Christians can rejoice. This is where our text for tonight enters in gloriously. This letter to the Christian church in Rome, I mean, it's the Apostle Paul's Mona Lisa. If you've never read it, if you've never read the book of Romans, at times it's hard to digest, and other times it's sweeter than honey. In verse 3, it's a little bit of both. See, Paul is going off in this chapter about sin and how Christ has changed the name of the game, and then we find these chunks of insight. Look at verse 3 again of Romans 5. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice, we rejoice, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. First, caveat, this idea of Christian rejoicing in suffering isn't some freaky sadist thing. We don't scroll through Twitter or watch on the news and then break out pinatas every time we see something bad. Those who follow Jesus can rejoice for the exact reasons this verse, these verses lay out. That no pain, please hear me, that no pain or misery will ever, ever, ever be wasted. It's only recently I can look back at the years of abuse my siblings and I have endured. Over 20 years later, and where I thought no good will ever come from that situation. How could child abuse ever produce a shred of redemption? And yet our God, who was bigger than any sin or suffering, somehow used it unspeakably in my life. So much so that I can look back at ravage abuse in my home and I can rejoice. Not at the suffering, but at the redemption that happened through it. Where today, with perspective, I see how I've been involved with caring for and pastoring and teaching and shepherding children in some form or fashion since 1998. Spending time with little ones over the course of my ministry who have been horribly abused. And being with them not in ignorance, but as a lighthouse pointing them to safety. God has given me a very renewed, redeemed understanding of my personal suffering. Friends, only God can take what's in ruins and make it to something praiseworthy. Are there, um, are there any musicians in here? It's L.A. I'm surprised everybody's hand's not raised. Oh, yeah. So all four musicians in here, and we have like five people in the band. That's hilarious. <laughs> you four musicians... Have you heard of the passing note? Uh, musician and theologian Jeremy Begbie makes this point very, very strongly. Uh, it's most common with piano. That as a musician is strolling through his set and tickling the old ivories. <laughs> Every once in a while, you hit a wrong note, and thus the song suffers. But a passing note is where the musician of the song plays it in such a way that he or she can actually redeem any mistake, any failure, any wrongdoing, and virtually it goes unnoticed and only adds to the beauty of the song. This, my friends, can bring us to rejoice 
Not that God authored and illustrated harm to come to any of us. Did you notice that it doesn't say that in our verses? It doesn't say God strikes us with cancer just so we can be better people. Sadly, our world is broken and the inevitable happens. And when it does, God's sovereignty makes sure that it's not in vain. That our pain, our pain is not pointless. That pain can have purpose. That all affliction and suffering works towards and produces. See, God plays the passing notes with every working key in our lives. He turns the sharps into majors, pain into beauty, where we were once, I mean, doing what we could never do on our own or never produce on our own. So where we mostly are concerned with, well, how will everything turn out? God is also concerned with how will we turn out? Friends, this is huge for us to get this like whole Romans 5 perspective thing. This kind of perspective, which is difficult in times of understanding, but true nonetheless. Nobody wants to read Romans 5 in the midst of horrible suffering. That is the last thing I really want to read in the moments of pain. But the perspective is true nonetheless. See, without that perspective, we will either become better or horribly bitter. Without that perspective, we will either overcome or be overcome. The Dutch priest Henry Nouwen, a man whose life was far from easy, he says it very pointedly, very point blank. He goes out there and just does it. He says, we fail to see the place of suffering in the broader scheme of things. We fail to see that suffering is an inevitable dimension of life because we have lost perspective. We fail to see that unless one is willing to accept suffering properly, he or she is really refusing to continue in the quest for maturity. To refuse suffering is to refuse personal growth. It's pretty intense. See, it is a guarantee that we will suffer. It is a guarantee that we will suffer. What remains to be seen is if we will endure. It's a difference between becoming a victim or becoming victorious. For victims, the suffering always remains, and their God is very, very limited. But that's very much not Job's God. See, but to know and suffer rightly, Romans 5 comes to life. It means endurance. It means we can experience healing. We can grow. We are transformed in the process. I mean, that is victorious suffering. That's to cry out as Job did in the last chapter of the book, the very last chapter in the Old Testament. Look at Job's response to all of this. It's a bit beefy, so just bear with me, but it's so rich. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. That last little verse could make me cry so easily. See, Job endured. Job was never the same. Job discovered hope. 
to believe and follow, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, strength, is not an insurance policy against suffering. You see, pain and illness and death and crushed hopes and horrible choices, somehow that type of pile God uses. And he makes us stronger and better and wiser. See, no matter who you are, God can use it. It's so elementary. I know it sounds, it sounds easy. But for a moment or two, I just want to tease this out. Bear with me. Let's tease this out because I think it's very easy to comprehend do suffering. Right? Do suffering. Meaning if somebody drives drunk, God forbid, and they wrap their car around a tree, we kind of go, okay, that makes sense. Somebody makes a foolish choice and suffers from it, we go, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But why do good people suffer? Why do the righteous, why do men like Job suffer? Why do our children suffer? Allow me to construct this idea of pain and suffering with some very large, much-needed marble pillars of understanding. It's only three points. If you want to write them down, I'm going to go through them quick. It's up to you. But when it comes to suffering and types of suffering, know this. Some suffering is purely normative. It's just common everyday occurrences of living in a fallen world. Basically, every time we get a splinter or we have to wait like 30 seconds for a YouTube ad to end, or I mean, oh God, what art thou teaching me? Like that's not, I must lay in ash and sackcloth. Like that's not the whole point every time we have a headache. We have to make sure we don't theorize every time flat tire or every time we, our kids scrape their knees because suffering at times is just normative. It just happens. So that's one. And two is, at other times, it's redemptive. Suffering is just redemptive. Suffering at times can be corrective. The Bible explains this very clearly that God is our Father and at times like a good father should, he puts their children back on the right path. We see this explained very well in Hebrews, a New Testament letter. And third, suffering is redemptive. Redemptive suffering. And this is huge. This is where suffering is allowed to take place on such a cosmic level that its only function is to serve as a signpost of his glory and his adoration which makes Satan and all the angels look at somebody like Job who loves God and trusts God for far more for what kind of relief or riches he or she may get. They just, in all purity, just radically love and trust God. So there is normative suffering, restorative suffering, redemptive suffering, and all of these which are able to be transformative in suffering just as Romans 5 informs us. That when we will have our endurance and our character will flourish and we will have hope. Let me ask this. In times of horrible suffering and pain, what is your hope? What is your hope? When I was, when I was in the hospital earlier in January, maybe some of you remember, my only hope was just get me out of here. I was struggling for three days. Just get me out of this horrible, horrible hospital. 
because every moment I'm here is like $36,000. Like, get me out of here. What is your hope and pain and suffering? I think we're starting to really get that God does answer the question why, but that's not where our hope is born. God answers the question why, but it's not with paragraphs or bar graphs. It's not with explanations or, you know, explosions. It's with a person. God answers that question with a person, and it's with his very own son. It's with the one who stands with us in the fire. It was during this time with my stepfather, who, when he was a, you know, that we would randomly go to church sometimes, and I, as a young boy, I'd hear Bible story after Bible story sitting in this little classroom as somebody's trying to teach me the Bible. But one episode in the Old Testament shook me to the bones, and that was Daniel 3. This is exactly what a 13-year-old boy needed to hear when he's dealing with massive pain. It's a small story about three men who refused to worship a false god and for the lack of cooperation were thrown in fire. And these three men stood in fire and all around who witnessed heard not screaming, they saw no smoke, and they did not see three men burning. But a fourth man unbound in the fire walking freely in the furnace with the three. See, it was God visible. God and flesh. It was God present. It was God in the fire. We may suffer, but we will never suffer alone. Presence is the greatest comfort in times of distress. And if you don't believe that, be around somebody who is mourning. They don't want to talk. They don't want to shop, eat, play, or run. They want to sit there with somebody. Presence is presence, presence. And this is far more than just intellectual answers. Those are good. Intellectual answers are are fine. Those are important. But our weight in gold is the assurance that Jesus is with us through it all. God's solution to a suffering world is his suffering son who stepped in fire willingly for you and for I. It's Jesus Christ saying to us in the flames, take heart. I am right here. Take heart in the storm. I am right here. My friends, if this is your reality, you have hope. And a hope that does not put us to shame, but because God's love is important to our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope is confident expectations in the times where we should be most unconfident. Hope is confident expectations in the times where we should be most uncertain. Hope comes alive in fire. Hope comes alive in suffering. See, hope isn't wishful thinking. It isn't unfounded optimism. I really hope something good happens out of this. Hope is concrete, steel, valerian, adamantium, confident, confident, confident. And hope, as well, is an option. See, we either choose to employ its shoot or we plummet to the earth. And if I could just address just the Christians in this room for a moment. If we're firm on the incarnation where Jesus came into our suffering, 
If we're firm on the crucifixion where Jesus bore our pain, if we're firm on the resurrection where Jesus defeated sin and death, then may we be firm in the horribles of the everyday. Jesus shows each and every one of us it's impossible for us to be in fire, in the furnace, in the storm, in darkness, separate from him. Because our lives have been invaded by his very presence, grace, and love. And we have the I am. He is with us, Emmanuel. So when embers fly and these sparks pop and the flames roar, when you're confronted with your weakness and lack of control, when you feel small and unable, when you cannot alter any situation, it's in those moments the glory of Jesus is most beautifully seen. Dare I say it, we need the fire at times to stoke the coals of hope. And we see God more gloriously. The good news of Jesus burns brighter. Friends, life should not be evaluated by ease or difficulty, but based upon the one who was with us in both of those times. God's presence doesn't make us, God's presence doesn't make us, hear me, this, is, this was hard for me to write today, and I was trying to make sure I did it well, but God's presence does not necessarily make it easier. Cool, you're, you're in the fire. With, it doesn't make it easier but it does make it worth the endurance. It does not make it easier, but it does make it worth the endurance. I want to end with this Charles Spurgeon quote who was not at all ignorant to suffering, and he penned, Don't you know that the day dawns after night? Showers displace drought, and spring and summer follow winter. Then have hope. Hope forever, for God will not fail you. Amen? What we're going to do now, some of you may remember, um, from our sending church a while back, that the other lead pastor here with me, Pastor Lorenzo, was in significant, significant pain. He went from canes to crutches to a wheelchair. And it was in these times of distress and suffering that God gave him very specific word and understanding of what it means to suffer and suffer rightly. So I want to let Pastor Lorenzo take the pulpit, be able to explain and put some handlebars on what it means to suffer in such a way. Thanks, Casey. As Casey said, I was experiencing, I was going through the season of intense physical pain. It was the worst, it was, it was one of the most difficult things I've ever been through. It was certainly the most painful thing I've ever been through. Uh, I was in intense, I mean, to say I was in intense pain is, it, it, all right, I get it, you know, it's intense pain. But it's not until I went through this experience that I learned what that really, really meant. And I learned about the intensity that, that, that you know, the, the level of, intensity that we can experience when we're in pain. Um, I was really just going out of my mind. The cause was what they described, and they couldn't really figure it out completely because I have other medical issues that I have implanted pacemaker leads that prevent me from getting an MRI, but they, they did a scan that at the very least led them to believe I had a massive, what they described as a massive herniated disc in my back, and there's bad backs and herniated discs and that's not fun but it's kind of whatever at the same time. My problem was that this herniated disc was pressing on a nerve 
And so it wasn't that I had back pain or a bad back, but I was really wrestling with nerve pain. And it progressively got worse. It, it, it started about 20 years ago when I, uh, not nearly at this level, but it, it all initiated about 20 years ago when I got hurt playing baseball. And uh, my back got jacked, but you know, whatever, I'll deal with it. And it would come back from time to time where, you know, um, I, I'd be crooked and my wife would say, hey, you're crooked again. I'm like, oh yeah, this kind of sucks, but I'll get over it in a couple weeks. But a couple years ago, you know, it came back, but it came back with a vengeance like it never had been before. And it started out with, hey, babe, you're crooked. I'm like, I know, I'll get over it in a couple weeks. And I remember it just getting, it got progressively worse and worse and worse, wor- more, more painful and, and worse than it ever had been before, even the initial injury. And I remember when I was still working at Reality LA, going to our Christmas party, and it, gotten, it had got that bad, that bad that day that I actually gone down to CVS and I bought myself a cane, which was way too late for that anyway. I, was, I literally bought, I grabbed the cane off the rack and I had to lean on the racks because it was folded up. I couldn't use the cane. It was in its packaging. I had to pay for it still, so I couldn't use it yet. But I was leaning on the racks, just making my way, shuffling up the aisle. And an elderly lady walked out to me. She said, are you okay? Can I help you? And I thought, that's ironic. I'm like, no, I think I'll be okay. And, and here I am, big dummy, just trying to persevere through it and deal with it. But that night, I went to the reality of like Christmas party for the staff, and I couldn't even make it into the building. And things progressively got worse and worse and worse. And uh, the cane, three days later, turned into crutches, which again was already not enough. And before long, I was in a wheelchair. And I couldn't do anything. I couldn't be a father to my children. Um, it was the worst. My little girl, she, she would come up to me and, Daddy, do you want to play with me? I can't, babe. I'm sorry. Hey, Daddy, let's do this. Let's do that. Daddy, can you hold me? Daddy, can you put me to bed? And I couldn't do any of those things. And it was actually kind of funny from my daughter's perspective, I guess, because everything that explained what I couldn't do was because of my back. And before long, she started using that as an excuse as to why she shouldn't obey me. Or <laughs> every, I can't, my back. <laughs> Kids, they're little monsters, I'm telling you. <laughs> but it was the excuse, and it was the explanation. It was legitimately, holding, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't use the restroom. I couldn't move. I was relegated to sort of living on the couch, but even then, I was in constant intense pain and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't find a position that was comfortable at all to allow me to sleep. And there was one night in particular, I was laying on the couch and I'm just laying there and I'm just out of my mind in pain. And it was probably about four o'clock in the morning and I was just crying out to God. And I wasn't really asking why not because I'm super spiritual, but because in that moment, I didn't really care. It wasn't going to help me in that moment. Well, you know, we're going through this because X, Y, Z. Okay, great, thanks. But I'm still dealing with this. So as to why, I could care less in, in that moment. And I didn't feel like it would add anything to my life in that moment. And I was just crying out to God. I just wanted to get a sense of his presence, and I just wanted him to get me through it. And I was, I'll never forget it. I'm laying there on the couch in the middle of the night, just writhing around, trying to find some relief. And God ministered to my heart. And this is what he revealed to me. 
the way he sustains me is not necessarily measured by making me stronger in my trial, but by giving me hope in him when my trial is stronger than me. And when he revealed that to me, I grabbed my phone, because it was always close by in case I needed to call my wife or whatever, call the ambulance, and I jotted that down. I wrote that down. Let me read it again for you. The way he sustains me is not necessarily measured by making me stronger in my trial, but by giving me hope in him when my trial is stronger than me. God's presence was everything in that moment, and his nearness was everything in that moment, and it was in him I was able to find hope. And again, it's not because I'm super spiritual, but it was just, it's God's grace. See, here's the thing. God always shows up. When we're going through various things and struggles and suffering and afflictions and trials and whatever it might be, if we'll just call out to God, God always shows up. Now, here's the problem, really. He doesn't always show up the way that we always want him to, right? He'll show up, but sometimes, like Casey said, it's in the fire. And it's not always where he rescues us from the fire. Sometimes he's just with us in those circumstances. And by God's grace, he, he, he gave me that revelation in that moment, that sort of visitation in that moment of the reality of who God is and his faithfulness to me. And I wish it, would, I wish it was different in our, human, our, in our human experience. I wish things... I, I wish that we could just, uh, I wish it was as simple as, you know, like the magic wand kind of thing and our problems always go away. But sometimes God in his sovereign will and in his grace allows us to go through things that where it's not fun for us. But he'll be with us every step of the way. And he'll sustain us, not by ripping us out or rescuing us from those circumstances, by giving us a, by giving us a sense of his presence and a sense of his closeness and his nearness in the midst of those things when we are out of our minds in pain, or when circumstances are falling apart, our lives or our mess, where we've experienced in, in intense loss, or whatever it might be, God is faithful and God always shows up. He always shows up because he loves us. And my prayer for our church, when we go through difficult times, is that we would allow God to minister to us, that we would not impose upon God how and the methodology that he must submit to, that we impose on him for him to work in our lives, but that we would just submit ourselves to allow him to do what he wants in our lives. And I can tell you, you know, I'm, I'm not okay still. By God's grace, I'm walking. I can transfer my weight. I can actually sort of carry a box and things like that. And I never had surgery or anything like that. And, and, and God has been faithful and, and he has sustained me. And I don't, actually don't know why I'm, I have the mobility I have right now, but it, it gradually went away. And sure, there was a lot of people praying and, and no doubt God answered those prayers and gave me grace. But um, sometimes we just go through things that we can't explain. And we spend so much time and energy trying to figure stuff out. And sometimes we even shake an angry fist at God and we dare him to explain to us in a way that meets our satisfaction, why he's allowing certain things to come into our lives. And we don't always get to know that. And in our finite minds, we're not even always able to comprehend it. So maybe it's just good for us to just submit ourselves to him to allow him to do what he wants in our lives. So my prayer for our church is that our hope would not be in the end of our struggles or in the ends of our trials or the ends of our suffering 
but that as a church, we would find our hope in him, regardless of what we're going through, regardless of what we're experiencing, that Jesus, the very person of Jesus, would be our hope. Let's pray.